The matter of stumbling blocks is a subject that occupies a lot of time and a lot of attention in certain circles, and then in other circles, it, it receives no attention whatsoever. Now, the, the world in which I grew up in was one where there was a lot of talk about stumbling blocks. There was a lot of uh, discussion about, oh, well, we don't want to make that person stumble, so we do or don't do the following things. That is the matter which today's text addresses. We're looking in verses 13 through 23. It says, Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. The British commenter F.F. Bruce said, quote, Martin Luther, who begins his treatise on liberty of a Christian or the freedom of a Christian, which is why last week's text was titled what it was titled, on the freedom of a Christian, with the words quoted above, quote, a Christian is a most free Lord of all, subject to none, goes on immediately to say a Christian is a most dutiful servant of all, subject to all. Luther was never a more faithful follower of Paul or of Paul's master and his than when he juxtaposed these two affirmations, that you are free in Christ, yet you are a servant of all, and it is both, both are true. Concerning our Subject and text today, the commenter, commentator Bruce goes on to say, the question of what kinds of food might or might not be taken agitated the early church in various ways. It was a big deal to the Roman church. One of these affected Jewish Christians more particularly. The Jewish food laws, which had been observed by the nation from early days, constituted one of the principal features which distinguished Jews from their Gentile neighbors. Not only was the flesh of certain animals absolutely prohibited, but the blood of all animals was absolutely prohibited. And clean animals slaughtered for food had to be killed in such a way that their blood was entirely drained away. Since one could never be sure that meat eaten by non-Jews was free from every suspicion of illegality in one respect or another, it was impossible for a strict observant Jew to share a meal with a Gentile. Indeed, such a Jew might find it difficult enough to share a meal with a fellow Jew from whom he suspected a laxity on these matters. Close quote. I thought it was helpful to consider that and read that, just to put ourselves more in that world, to, to understand more what was happening back then and why this is even addressed in our text today. So we start off with a problem and a solution. The problem is there is a harsh judgment and criticism of other believers. A harsh judgment and criticism of other believers. This is why Paul says in verse 13a, the first part of verse 13, he says, therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer. He's just telling them, hey, you need to not do this. You need to not be passing harsh judgment on one another. The solution is found in 13b, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. So don't put stumbling blocks or hindrances in the way of your brother. It's very straightforward. But and there's more to it than that. But before we get into the, the, to that, we must consider the reasoning. The reasoning is because in Christ, nothing is clean or unclean. Now, that doesn't mean that 
You can do whatever you want. Obviously, we have the, the full scripture. We have the, the New Testament, for example, that instructs us on what the Christian's life is supposed to look like, what it looks like to follow the Old Testament law as described for us in the New Testament. How we should conduct ourselves as a Christian is unpacked in the New Testament. We find that very clearly. So we do have do's and don'ts, but it's the things that the Bible tells us, particularly in the covenantal arc of redemptive history, what the New Testament tells us as Christians. So we know that in Christ, no food or drink is unclean in and of itself. Verse 14a says, I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. It is in Christ that that is the case. In the dietary laws, in the dietary system, well, yeah, there you can't eat this and you can't eat that. But in Christ, nothing is unclean. That's the reason, that's motivation. Now, there is a call in verse 14b for forbearance. It is unclean for anyone who thinks it is unclean. So as we discussed last week, the stronger Christian needs to be tolerant and forbearing and being patient with the weaker Christian, the one who his conscience is so severely harmed by the thought of eating that food, which had been either prepared in an improper way, or it was not kosher, or it was sacrificed to an idol, or it came from the meat market first, where they sacrificed it to to some other god. So we need to have patience and forbearance, which is described in verse 14b. Then the motive for this whole thing is described in verse 15, and that is love. Love. We must esteem others more highly than yourself. This love, this esteeming of others more highly than yourself will motivate you to elevate their needs and even their preferences above your own. Look at verse 15. It says, For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love by what you eat. Now, this text, this scenario, this situation that is described in Romans 14 is very similar to the one that is described in 1 Corinthians 8. If you have a Bible, you should turn to 1 Corinthians 8. It says this, verse 1. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many, quote, gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, as one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist." Verse 7, however, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat foods as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, he will not be encouraged. 
if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols. Verse 11, and so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Verse 12, thus, sinning against your brother and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Now, there are some things going on here, both in this text and I believe in Romans 14, that are important to consider. Last week, I gave a bunch of examples at the end of the message about things that are opinions or hobby horses and such. And that, and that is what Paul starts off Romans 14 with. He starts off saying, you know, as for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. Now, there's a temptation to take all of those things that I described last week, which I believe you are genuinely free to do or to not do for the most part, with some exceptions, um, politics being one, that there is very clear moral instruction in the New Testament, but those things which are not so clear, you can do or not do. Now, that is all the case. That is all true and accurate. But this concept of stumbling blocks, which we've mentioned, it raises the question for you, if, if you're a Christian or you've been around Christians very much, you know that people have those opinions about the types of things that I described last week. And and it has to raise the question in your mind of, is that the same as what's happening here? Is it the same with like, hey, that person's going to be offended about this certain thing. They're going to they're gonna be annoyed if they see me, you know, with, with a, a glass of, of wine on some social media picture. Because that really on, on par with what's happening in the first century church. And then is this text the, the text to go to for all points of contention, whether anyone is offended about anything, any issue? We just say, hey, you have to default to the weaker, to the weaker brother. Hopefully you're kind of picking up that my, my answer is probably going to be no, based on even the way I built that up. And I believe the answer is no, and I believe that that is based on this example found in 1 Corinthians 8, which then once we will come to understand, we'll see how it applies over to Romans 14. 1 Corinthians 8 verse 11 says, So by your knowledge this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. That same language is found over in Romans, um, Romans 14. It says, by what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. It's the same word, same word in Greek. It's the word apolumi, which is defined this way. It is definitive destruction, not merely in the sense of extinction of physical existence, but rather of an eternal plunge into Hades and a hopeless destiny of death. So basically, it's like going to hell. It is definitive destruction, not just a sense of your physical death, but rather your plunging into hell. So think with me. I, I said it's the word apolumi. Remember the name Apollyon. Same root word. 
that word, Apollyon, is a name for Satan, which means the destroyer. So when we look in our text here, either in 1 Corinthians 8 or in Romans 14, when it says, do not destroy your brother for whom Christ died, it's, I don't think it's quite the same as some of these petty things that have really no bearing on anything whatsoever. And if, if you or the other person admit it, like it's completely indifferent, as we called last week, adiaphora, something that's, that doesn't matter something that has no bearing. Now, there's another word that we must consider in 1 Corinthians 8, and it's verse 13. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Same concept, same imagery, same idea as what's happening over in Romans 14. But it's the word stumble. Stumble is the word I want to draw attention to. The Greek word is uh, the word scandalon, which is a lot like our word, scandal. It is defined this way. Both formally and material, the New Testament, materially, the New Testament uses this word, scandalon, and another form of the same word. Uh, it is exclusively controlled by the thought and speech of the Old Testament and Judaism. So every instance where you see this word, scandalon, in the New Testament is tied to and connected to Old Testament thought, Judaism. How far the words are from Greek thought may be seen not only by their absence from Greek literature. In other words, this word is not found in secular Greek literature, but it's found in the like the Greek translation of the Old Testament, and it's found in the New Testament in passages that are related to Old Testament Judaism. How far these words are from Greek thought may be seen not only from their absence from Greek literature, but also from the need which the, the, the church fathers repeatedly felt to explain the meaning of the New Testament word scandalon, which is worth noting that the two terms are almost always used by New Testament authors whose roots are in Judaism. So, it's helpful to understand that, to understand that this concept of destroying your brother, uh, causing him to stumble, is tied to something quite a bit more serious than whether or not your grandma sees you with a deck of cards. The same source, the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament, goes on to, to describe says, in the New Testament, as in the Old, what is at issue in Scandalon is the relation to God. The Scandalon is an obstacle in coming to faith and a cause of going astray from it. As in the Old Testament, it is the cause of both transgression and destruction. For a fall in faith is a fall in the absolute sense the force of the verb scandalizo is even stronger than that of the noun scandalon in the New Testament. Whereas scandalon is only an occasion of falling, which might lead to a fall or not, scandalizo is the causing of a fall, and scandalizo mai is the actual taking place of the fall. So I want you to understand that I believe, and I'm arguing today, that a stumbling block is something far more serious, far more grave than just 
oh, hey, they got mad at me because they're like, oh, you shouldn't be doing that. But it's something that's actually of significant spiritual impact that causes a destruction of your faith. Now, I don't have an airtight definition or list of what those things are and what those things are not. But I think the more you grow in your faith and the more you hang out with other Christians, you'll realize like, okay, somebody doesn't like this thing, but it's actually not that serious. And there really is no consequence to whether or not they're annoyed that I did the thing or not. It didn't cause them to fall. It didn't cause them to renounce their faith. That's this, this language of stumbling. It means to fall from the faith. I think a helpful practical illustration, which again, every illustration has its flaws, so only take it to a a helpful sense. But think with me practically, if someone who has a food allergy, now let's say they have a very serious allergy to nuts, and they're coming over to your house for dinner, and you respond, well, they shouldn't be so sensitive as you're chopping up a bunch of mixed nuts and you throw them into the main course. What you're doing is you're destroying that person. You're going to kill them. Now, that's just on a human level. Like, that's not spiritually destroying them, but you're physically, like, they're going to go into anaphylactic shock. Their throat is going to swell up. They're not going to be able to breathe. And by the time the ambulance gets through New York traffic, they're going to be dead. So that, I think, would be an example of something like, okay, you need to give up your liberty to have the peanuts in the soup or whatever it may be for the sake of the one who has that very serious allergy. If you listen to sermons on this text, which I make a habit of listening just to hear how other pastors handle it, to hear which direction they take it and see if what I'm doing is is broadly on the right path or kind of making stuff up. I, I listened to a couple different ones and I'll just say that I believe this is quite a bit more serious than you driving a nice car and someone looking at you and judging you for maybe not being as wise of a steward with money as they wish that you were. It's also quite a bit more serious than buying coffee at the coffee shop instead of making it at home because, oh, you wasted $3. This is quite a bit more serious than that. This is also more serious than wearing that skirt that your grandma says is too short because it shows your knees. This is quite a bit more serious than playing poker while wagering M&Ms and posting a picture of it on Instagram with the playing cards in the background. What's really going on here is that there are things, practically speaking, that you are genuinely free to do that historically are so tied to false religions that if you did them in the presence of a new convert who used to follow that pagan religion, they would be utterly undone. Their faith would be so damaged, it would be shaken. Their conscience would be so wounded that they would suffer massive spiritual harm. Their faith would be so shaken, they would be tempted to renounce Christ. Now, Here is another faulty illustration, an example that I made up, but I think it makes the point. Think about the phrase, Black Lives Matter. It is a true saying. In and of itself, you know, 
these words, there's nothing wrong with them. But it has a certain meaning culturally, and it has a certain association tied to it. Now, imagine with me that your father is a first-generation Russian immigrant business owner who has spent years working and saving and preparing for the day that he can launch his own storefront business. He's invested his life savings into this business. He fought with dishonest landlords using predatory contracts with their buildings, with major plumbing and electrical problems, and he didn't know These landlords took advantage of his less-than-perfect English grammar by hiding certain major exceptions in the clauses in the fine print because English was obviously a second language because he spoke with such a heavy accent. So they looked at him and said, ha, we can can get this guy. Now he's had one disaster after another, and he's spent nearly every penny he has to launch the store. And the grand opening is scheduled for Saturday morning, June 2nd, 2020. But it's a Friday night, June 1st, 2020. And BLM riders come through the city, looting and burning everything they can get their hands on. Your dad tried to protect his property with a baseball bat, but there were too many rioters. They threw bricks through the windows. They lit everything on fire, and they took his bat and beat him with it. They left the store in flames, and your dad's crumpled body in a bloody heap. Your dad spends six weeks in the hospital before being released. He was finally able to return to church six weeks later, where he found they've hired a new pastor. That first Sunday back in church, the preacher stood in the pulpit and said, violence is the cry of the unheard. Now, in solidarity, please raise your right hand in a fist and repeat after me, Black Lives Matter, Black Lives Matter, Black Lives Matter. Your dad begins to tremble as his eyes are filled with tears. He begins to quietly collect his things, grabbing his Bible and his new cane, and limps and walks out of the church, and he swears he will never return. Now, fast forward 20 years. It's the year 2040. Your dad is 80 years old now. The grandkids have finally persuaded him to return to church, to give it another shot. Now, can you think of any words that at some point in that distant future might have lost their current cultural meaning, but to him, 20 years from now, might lead to him rejecting Christ. Because those words or that concept is so destructive even to his soul to have a pastor stand up and say, We must resolve not to put the kind of stumbling blocks in the ways of another brother that would cause their faith to be utterly ruined. Like I said, it's not a perfect illustration, but I think it is a powerful one. There are things that can cause massive spiritual harm. I don't have a tight list to say what they are or what they're not, but we must walk in love towards our brothers. Now, looking at verse 16. Do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. We must conduct ourselves in such a way that those things which are good are not spoken of as evil. 
though they are things that some weaker brothers would be harmed by. You need to be careful in your spiritual walk. You need to walk with wisdom. And the reason for that is found in verse 17. It says, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. We must hold some things with a very open hand where we're saying, you know, I I don't have to keep this. I don't have to hold on to it. I can give it up. It's not a big deal. What is described here is food and drink. Must be willing, be more than willing, very happy to give them up for the sake of your brother. But it's the brother that is genuinely negatively affected by this. Not just someone who's being petty, but someone who actually their faith will be destroyed. Look at verse 18. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. Whoever thus serves Christ. In this way, the person who serves Christ like this is acceptable to God and approved by men. The one who cares and genuinely loves his brother finds great approval and acceptance by his brothers in Christ. So then, verse 19, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. God is doing a tremendous work in the lives of each of his saints. And we should not take those things which we can honestly live without. It's like the peanuts in the food. Really, we're totally fine without it and we can easily give it up for the sake of someone else's survival and not destroying them. We can give those things up when we need to for the sake of the weaker brother. But when we don't need to, we are free to, to put the, the peanuts in the food because it is not, we're, we're not unspiritual, we're not less spiritually if, if we do embrace that thing which is spiritually neutral but someone else finds harmful. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. This line, everything is indeed clean, that, that took some, some wrestling for me to, to receive years ago when I first started reading the Bible as a teenager, saying, wait a second, everything? Everything is indeed clean? You mean like, the freedom that I have as a Christian is real. It doesn't come with these stacks of, but, however, no, you're actually free. Everything is indeed clean. We want to become strong in the faith. Thankfully, for your spiritual life, it's, it's not the same as a, a physical food allergy where you can't just stop it. You can't just grow out of it. You can't mature past your, your severe food allergy. But we can grow spiritually and we can, come, we can become less easily offended. It's been widely said that a mature believer is easily edified. The immature believer is the one who is, is so tripped up by every single thing, they're impossible to keep happy. They're, impo- they're always complaining about every little thing. They keep the record of wrongs and they let you know at the end of the service, pastor, you said these three things that I disagreed with. You know, that's an immature believer. 
even though they think that they're more spiritual because they have more hang-ups. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. This word stumble here is a word that means to strike your foot against something as you walk, to stumble, to trip and fall. You hit it and you go down. Verse 21, it is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. He's, Paul is pushing back on both sides, just back and forth, back and forth in this section. He's like, yeah, don't make him, don't make him stumble and fall, but also, hey, keep your opinions to yourself. There may be times when you, just practically speaking as a Christian, you're talking to someone else and they're, they're asking you like, oh, well, what do you think about this? And you say, you know, I just want to keep that to myself. And maybe it's best that way. Maybe it's best for you not to push and prod and pry and try to get all the d- details of their opinion about a certain thing and just to say, you know what, that's all right. That's between you and God. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. That does not mean keep your faith to yourself. That doesn't mean don't witness or anything of that nature. In this text, when he says the faith that you have, he's not speaking about your salvation. He's speaking about your belief about these particular things. Also, don't, don't be tempted to feel guilty for having these things. Like if, if there are certain things, because this goes both ways with the faith that you have, keep between yourself and God, whether that's you thinking that a certain thing is wrong or you thinking that a certain thing is right. If you're paying attention in your Christian life, you'll know what people's hangups are. And it is not wrong for you. You don't need to feel guilty because you do believe it is totally fine to, you know, play with playing cards, even though your grandparents call it the devil's Bible. So you don't need to feel guilty or like a second-class Christian because you are keeping that thing to yourself. It's not wrong for you to keep those things to yourself when someone is over who you know is going to be offended by it. Though we will feel tempted to feel guilty because we, you know, we know they don't like that thing. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. This is speaking to the conscience. It's speaking to your own mind, your own relationship to God. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. F.F. Bruce points out an interesting line made from a textual variant that no doubt was a note written off to the side of the margin that made its way through the centuries into the text of Scripture over time. That's, that's what textual variants typically come from that, the, similar to a study Bible, but it's written by hand, and so you have this note off to the side that explains something that's in the text, and then in the next version or whatever, maybe it got rained on or something, and the ink bled a little bit, and the next person said, oh, that's... That should be there. There's a textual variant from Codex Beza uh, after Luke 6.4, which says, uh, after our, our Lord, seeing a man working on the Sabbath, said to him, man, if indeed you know what you're doing, you're blessed. But if you do not know, you are cursed and transgressor of the law. 
Now, did that happen? We don't know. Is it supposed to be in Scripture? I don't think so. But it is a helpful little scenario, a helpful little explanation of like, oh, no, if you think that it's wrong for you to be, um, you know, especially related to the Sabbath issues, seeing men working on the Sabbath, if you recognize, no, Christ is the fulfillment of our Sabbath rest, therefore it's not sinful for me to check my email on Sunday, then you're fine. But if you think that it is, then no, it's sinful for you because it's not from faith. As verse 23 closes, for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Bruce says, the implications of this statement appear to be that an action performed against the voice of conscience can never be right. Now, practically, what does that mean? Well, when your conscience feels guilty about something that you know is not wrong, you need to retrain your conscience. I I was raised in a movement known as fundamentalism, and in that movement, um, there's different streams of uh, schools of thought and streams of sort of tributaries of the movement where there's like the King James only side, and then there's the King James only moderate Calvinists, the King James only Calvinists, the King James only Arminians, um, the non-King James only Arminians, the non-King James only Calvinists. Like there's, there's a lot of different subsets of these movements, which is a subgroup of fundamentalism, which is a subgroup of evangelicalism. And it's all very complicated and there's lots of rules. I went to the, the flagship school of the entire movement and in that college at the time, there were a, a lot of rules about practical things which had no spiritual meanings, but there were oftentimes spiritual punishments for those practical things. So let's say you have to wear a tie every day before noon. Okay, that's fine. But to not wear a tie is also, it's not sinful not to wear a tie, but the rule's the rule. And then you as a student sign the handbook which says, I'm going to obey the rules. Now, that means if you break the rules, you're sinning because you're lying. So it's, it's a fairly simple little algorithm, but nevertheless, what that means is to, to not wear the tie when you're supposed to wear it would be sinful, but there's more to it. Like you're also supposed to button the top button instead of having the top button undone like this, you're supposed to have it done. So the reasoning is, well, it's about professionalism and it's unprofessional to look like you just rolled out of bed, so you have to wear a you know, tie. But along with that are also things like rules about your socks. You have to wear professional socks, not ankle socks, not no-show socks. So you got to wear like long, traditional, regular socks. But what happens is culturally, within the culture of that institution, if you are one who is very bound by your conscience about these things, you start looking at everybody's socks as a guy. And girls have their own list of things, which I'm not even up on that. But the sock situation, and then you start judging people, and you're like, oh, that guy, he's, he's breaking the socks rule. Another thing was, don't walk on the grass. Now, this is a very practical rule, because if you have 5,000 students just trampling across the grass, then you're not going to have very nice-looking grass. But when you saw people walking on the grass, you judged them, And when you walked on the grass, you felt guilty. You felt like you were doing something wrong. Because in a sense, you were, but not really. Just under this uh, dispensation, if you will, under this set of rules, you were doing something wrong. But in the real world, you're not. There's nothing wrong with taking that step off the sidewalk. 
So the result of that whole thing, it, 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 it leads to people feeling guilty because if you live in that environment for four years and then you get out of it, you're like, oh man, I didn't shave today. I feel like a rebel. I'm not wearing a tie today. I feel like a rebel. I didn't make my bed today. I feel like a rebel. I didn't take out the trash or vacuum because there's all these things. Every aspect of your life was regulated. So tons and tons of my contemporaries and classmates have renounced the faith because they're like, oh, this is legalistic. But they didn't retrain their consciences. And so they thought, well, the solution is to, to renounce Christ because they feel guilty for something that is of no spiritual impact. It is true that whatever does not proceed from faith is sin, but it is also true that we can grow in our faith, and we must grow in our faith. We must grow up to maturity. We must become people who are no longer tripping and falling over every little thing. The weak need to grow in their faith, and the strong need to bear with the one who is weak. The reason for this is because you must remember the way Christ dealt with you. Remember Matthew 12, 20, which says, a bruised reed he would not break. What's a bruised reed? Have you seen reeds lately? It's like the thing that grows on the, in the, the riverside. It's stronger than grass, but weaker than wood, and they can break. And that bruised one that's like kind of fallen over, Jesus doesn't go to that and snap it. A smoking wick, he doesn't snuff out. Think about a candle. The last time the candle went out, if it has that little red ember, you could tend to it in a campfire. You could tend to it and get it back up in flames again. Or you can douse water on it and put it out. But the way Christ deals with us is not to snuff it out but to carefully tend to that weak, frail faith and see it rise back up. So for you who are strong or stronger than you once were, remember that while your faith was weak, Christ nurtured your weakness and helped you grow into strength. When you stumbled and fell, Christ caught you in his wings of love. When you were harsh and legalistic, Christ gently showed you the error of your neonomian ways, building up new laws. So, weak Christian, look to Christ, because Christ is able to bear all of your infirmities. Look to Christ, who is a gentle Savior, a gentle shepherd who cares for his sheep. Look to Christ, the good shepherd who has never lost one of his sheep to the terrors of the lion's roar. Look to Christ who met all of the law's just demands and died under the wages of death that you had earned. And he died in order to give you life to give you forgiveness of sins, and to give you a permanent record of righteousness, which could not be changed. And he etched that into the book of life. He put your name there. Look to Christ, who is our risen Savior, who in victory is seated at the right hand of his Father as your perfect eternal defense attorney who pleads his blood when you sin again and again and again. If you are in him, you're trusting in him. 
So, weak Christian, when Satan lifts your sins and puts them in your face, or raises another weak Christian's sins in your face, remember this. Those who look on Christ will never be put to shame. They will never be cast away. He will not bring your sins up from the depths of the sea. Those things that have been confessed, those things that you have confessed to him, you've given them to him, he doesn't bring them back up again and throw them in your face. Because he casts them into the depths of the sea. And he's promised never to recall them. The way the weak become strong and the way the strong become patient and merciful is by looking to Christ. Now unto him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would help us, that we would not stumble and fall from the faith, for we are kept securely in your arms, that we would not be destroyed, that our faith would not be ruined, whether it's through a wrong handling of law and gospel, whether it's through a a wrong definition of sin, whether it's through a wrong treatment of the doctrine of justification, whether it's through falsely bound consciences for things that are not sins at all. Lord, I pray that you would help the weak to become strong and help the strong to become patient and forbearing with the weak. I pray that we would be a church of strong, compassionate believers whose hearts are filled with mercy towards other believers who are not yet where they are. Lord, I thank you for Christ, who is the Savior of sinners. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.